Ladies and gentlemen, mesdames et messieurs, damen und herren, from what was once an inarticulate mass of lifeless tissues, may I now present a cultured, sophisticated man about town. Hit it! Listening to 90.7 FM KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Rocks. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee, and I'm Gordon Campbell. Coming up on today's show: brains, breasts, and black holes. Also joining us is Professor Jean-Philippe Afflac to talk about plate tectonics. In addition, you find out what is the pancreas for. So stay tuned for all this, plus the world-famous question of the week, right here on Berkeley Rocks. I'm Franklin. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. And that makes me Gordon Campbell. All right. Well, I guess we all know who we are. Yeah. Uh, which can sometimes be confusing with so many people in the room. So how's everyone doing this week? Uh, you know, I'm still recovering from uh, last week's tragedy at the uh, polls. Oh, but, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, one day you may just wake up and everything's cool again, right? Yeah, maybe it's all just a bad maybe dream. it's just a bad I, dream. I think like in four years I'll wake up and hopefully <laughs> it'll be a bad dream. Get those anesthetics in, man. I think it'll take something a little stronger than that. So do you think God is an uh, atheist? Well, if he were, wouldn't that like negate his whole existence? Yeah, I guess so. You would cease to be at that point. <laughs> I think it just drives an SUV. <laughs> he must be a hardcore Christian fundamentalist. Uh, I'm convinced that Jesus is American, though. I think I actually saw Jesus on the street of Telegraph. Several for times. Yeah. In different reincarnations. Yeah. Was he homeless? Oddly enough, yeah, but that can't really be rich, I don't think. Maybe he's a sitar player. Okay, so besides this, all the fascinating things going on in science this week. Well, I know you guys have talked about this, but I thought I would broach the subject again of this neuroscience meeting down in San Diego. Ah, yes. About the cabeza, right? I I remember very little of the science, but more of the tequila. (laughs) Right. So one of the general trends I noticed was that there are a lot of groups that are working on mapping gene expression in the brain. So taking a look at every single gene and looking to see where in the brain it's expressed. And I guess the ultimate goal is to find out for every cell type, every gene that's expressed. This is the post-genomic world that we're living in now. (laughs) Both the mouse and the human have been sequenced, and actually all of these projects are taking place in the mouse. So there's the Allen Institute for Brain Science in Seattle, Mm -hmm. which was created by Paul Allen. Microsoft fame. Right, who donated $100 million to get this institute off the ground. The goal is to map gene expression patterns for 20,000 mouse genes by the end of 2006. So that's about 10,000 genes a year. Relatively short amount of time actually to do that. Wow. Uh, yeah. Two years, huh? Well, nothing like a deadline, you know, yeah, to get right. things done. And I guess the rationale for using the mouse is that it's extensively used as a model for human disease and mice actually share 99% of their genes with humans. Right. 
And then there's another group led by someone named Ma at Harvard. And basically what they did is they looked through the mouse genome and found all of the transcription factors. So these are genes that code for proteins that regulate the expression of other genes. Do they presume that are going to be very specific sets of genes expressed in the brain? I think that's the case. And I guess the ultimate question is, people have postulated a thousand cell types in the cortex. You know, the question is, what makes a cell type a cell type? And by one definition, you could say, well, that's the genes that that cell is expressing. Right. Finding out how many different types of cells right. there are. In well, if you, if you split it down fine enough, right, every cell I'm sure will have like a slightly different pattern of genes. Yeah, well, that's so, true. So I, I guess mean, where do you draw the line there? True. I mean, you, for example, the immune system, yeah. right? Every yeah. cell expresses a different antibody, right. but okay. they're all B cells, right? right. So. And yeah. then there's one other group that is doing a similar type of thing, except they're doing it over the course of development. And then that group is led by someone named Curran at St. Jude's Research Hospital in Memphis. Mm. And I guess they were saying that they're going to give their clones to the Allen Institute to look in the adult, and the Allen Institute said they could probably do it in a couple of weeks. Paul Allen is a genius. Yeah. (laughs) Or actually, what I heard, in fact, was that he was just more sort of a real estate baron, actually. (laughs) He's not really interested, per se, in the uh, whole biotechnology industry. He just owns all the land up there, so he wants to develop it and draw more biotechnology business up to Seattle. I think there was an article about him recently called The Reverse Midas Touch. Apparently, a lot of (laughs) ventures have not been working so well. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Very cool. Well, so, fun stuff from the Society for Neuroscience meeting. Again, we have to thank them for allowing us to crash their party, as it were. Yeah, eat their food. <laughs> Did you go to the prawn banquet? I, I went to the uh, <laughs> reception. sushi? <laughs> I didn't see I that, that one. I I'm missed a little, that one, I think. I'm always a little uh, wary of, like, all-you-can-eat sushi. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> All right, well, uh, switching topics a little bit. Are you guys able to control your emissions? You mean my radiation? What do you actually radiate, Frank? Um, black body radiation, of course. It goes in all different directions. With personality? <laughs> wow, black body radiation, you know. Albert Einstein actually won the, the Nobel, Nobel Prize, Prize for that, right? Yeah, not for the theory of relativity, as it turns out. Trivia fact for today. Uh, well, actually, black holes apparently are not able to control their emissions either. So they emit as well? <laughs> They're emitting all kinds of things, especially x-rays, it turns out. Ooh, as long as it's not foul odors. <laughs> well, I don't think anyone's ever uh, gone up and sniffed one, so it's <laughs> yet to be found out. But it turns out black holes actually spew out x-rays in two different ways, right? Right. As stars are basically collapsing in, into them, they sort of orbit in. Right. And then once they uh, collapse into them, right. and at that boundary, the stars will start to emit x-rays. Mm-hmm. So this occurs at the plane of orbit. But on the axial plane, also it emits two streams, these jets of uh, x-rays that come from out the from... the poles, right? Yeah, the north and south poles, right? right. But until this time, researchers really haven't been able to discern which x-ray is coming from which source. And it's not really even been clear whether or not they have different strengths. So a group of researchers led by Palumbo and colleagues at the Italian National Research Council's Cosmic Physics and Space Astrophysics Institute in Bologna. Wow, that's a mouthful. <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, I, I imagine that's why they, uh, they abbreviate it into some sort of uh, equally unpronounceable acronym. Uh, they basically were studying uh, a couple of black holes, in particular one which is in a galaxy 3 billion light years away, and they were actually able to discern the two different sources of the X-rays and show that they had different magnitude strengths. So wow. the ones coming off the poles actually seemed a little bit stronger than the ones in the orbital plane. Cool. So, wow. you know, if you want to emit in more than one direction, uh, I guess you'll have to. <laughs> it takes quite a bit of talent, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've tried it. I have many orifices. We don't want to know about your orifices. Uh, very few people do. Okay, <laughs> so, but this is a very fascinating work, and it was published in the recent edition of Science. So 
so what's your favorite journal this week? My favorite journal every week is Penis. <laughs> okay. Would you go for Hormones and Behavior? Uh, that's a close second, really. Wow. Behind Ladies Home Journal. Yeah. <laughs> and TV Guide. <laughs> I couldn't decide without TV Guide. Among those 500 channels, right? Yeah. So it turns out there's a very interesting article uh, recently. It turns out that the milk from the breast has some compounds which may influence sexual desire. That the baby or the mother? For the mother. I was so going to say, because I was going to go out and buy some uh, breast milk. I know. <laughs> Well, unfortunately, they haven't, been, yeah. they haven't been able to identify the compound yet. But in the study, what they did was they got 26 nursing women to wear absorbent pads in their bras for 5 to 10 days. And then they asked uh, 90 childless women to sniff these pads or controls several times for a couple months. Okay. And it turns out that the women who are sniffing the, the real breast pads had a 24% increase in their uh, sexual desire or their fantasies. I'm getting turned on just hearing about this experiment. <laughs> <laughs> the idea of women smelling breast pads, I don't know. <laughs> so it, it turns out... So, so it sounds like sort of a autoerotic kind of a thing. <laughs> you sniff your own breast milk and you get turned on. Or. I have no idea, but there is some <laughs> chemical tracer in there that seems to affect human behavior. Oh, my God, I, I can't wait till this thing's marketed. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Unfortunately, the cologne for this is not available yet. Oh, that's uh, a darn shame. I'm not really sure where <laughs> I would put it, though. <laughs> I guess on my breast. <laughs> uh, on your breast pad. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if my nipple will emit <laughs> such a powerful aphrodisiac. So this was in a recent edition of Hormones and Behavior, Volume 46. I think that's going to be the well, best-selling issue of Hormones and Behavior ever. <laughs> and that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to Berkeley Grox only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, coming up next, Professor Jean-Philippe Avoac will join us to discuss extending the theory of plate tectonics. So stay tuned. Berkeley Grox only here on 90.7 FM KALX. 
Well, the Earth's surface is thought to be composed of a dozen or so rigid plates. The boundaries where these plates come into contact are the sites of most of the interesting geologic phenomena that exist, including earthquakes. The theory describing the action of these plates, named plate tectonics, has been used for over 40 years, but it may be limited in its time scale. Well, joining us today to discuss this geological issue is Professor Jean-Philippe Avoac. Professor Avlak is a professor of geology at the California Institute of Technology, and he was previously head of the Laboratory de Teledetection et Risque Sismique, and is a recipient of the prestigious E.A. Flynn Award from the American Geophysical Union. Uh, professor Avlak, thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Grox. Thank you very much for the invitation. Uh, well, it's really a pleasure to have you on the program, and this is certainly, I think, a very fascinating issue, especially for all of those living in California. I'm curious if maybe you can first explain what is the theory of plate tectonics. Okay, so plate tectonics is a theory that describes motion at the ground surface at the global scale. So the idea is that the outer shell of the Earth can be divided into a number of plates, and that these plates are rigid over the long term, and so that deformation essentially occurs along the boundaries between these plates. And uh, the idea is that that would explain the seismicity at the global scale, volcanism, and actually this theory has done wonders in, in reconciling a number of uh, geological and geophysical observations that could be made over the last decades. It's the, the theory was, was proposed in, in the 60s. I see. What sorts of uh, issues did it resolve? You, you may remember the theory of continental drift, mm. this idea that continents used to be welded together and then split apart. This idea was proposed in particular in the early 20th century by Alfred Wegener, and it was based on the observation that you would find the same fossils on different continents, that, and so suggesting that at some time these continents used to be together. Also, it was based on the observation of glaciations that used to spread over several continents that are far away today, and to explain this distribution of glaciations, you needed to have them together. Uh, but at that time, the, the, the theory was not accepted by most people because there was no explanation for how continents might move on the surface of the Earth. And actually, tectonics came in the 60s with this idea that the oceanic floor would be created along these mid-oceanic reaches. Actually, you, you don't need to have the continents flowing their way through the oceanic floor, mm. but actually it's the oceanic floor that is, that is moving. It's created along the ridges and it disappears into the mantle along the subduction zone. So it's, in particular, it could reconcile the old continental drift theory with a number of observations that we made, mainly after World War II. And what is actually then driving the motion of these plates? The, the general idea today is that everything is driven by temperature. The Earth is a huge thermal engine, and heat is transferred either by diffusion through the medium or by advection, meaning that it is transferred because the medium is moving. And we know that in the Earth, advection is the main mode of heat transfer. And so what happens is that there is a lot of heat due to the initial formation of the Earth and also to the heat produced by the decay of various radioactive elements and this is heating the earth and to cool down heat is transferred outward by motion in the mantle which we call convective motions and so just the kind of convection you would have in a pan if you heat water mm. on it and what happens is that convection might be driving te tectonics but actually we don't know exactly what's the relationship between what we see 
see at the Earth's surface on what's going on in the mantle. And one way to address that is to do some physical modeling of this and to get a better view of the Earth's interior from various techniques and a better understanding of, of the kinematics of the formation at the surface. So what are then some of the challenges then really to be faced in trying to understand plate tectonics? Okay, so as I said at the beginning, plate tectonics has been very successful in explaining a number of observations in, in geology. But at the same time, it's clear that it's only a first-order approximation. According to the theory, all the deformation should occur along these very narrow plate boundaries. Now, if you look at the distribution of earthquakes on Earth or of active faults, these faults that can produce big earthquakes, you will see that it covers about nearly 20% of the Earth's surface. Hmm. So most of the plate boundaries are, are relatively wide, and we need to understand better what is governing, actually, the distribution of deformation. Hmm. Also, when we look at data that were gathered over the last uh, 10 years or so using the global positioning system, we can now measure directly motion of points at the Earth's surface. And what we see is that to the first order, it fits reasonably well models that were based on geological data. But we see differences, and we need to understand better what these differences are meaning. It may be that the deformation of the Earth over the long term is not stationary, and also it has to do with what's going on along specific large plate boundaries. Actually, I refer here to the seismic cycle, which is another theory that we use a lot in Earth sciences today. So it's the elastic rebound theory. The idea is that we could explain the rhythm of large earthquakes on a given fault with a simple analogical model. You imagine that you put a slider on the table, you attach a spring to that slider, mm -hmm. and then you pull the spring. So what happens is that the spring will extend for a while until it transmits a force to the slider that exceeds the friction at the base of the slider. Mm. And then suddenly, the slider will move a little bit mm. and stops again. And so if you keep on pulling slowly the spring at a constant velocity, the slider will move by certain slip events that would be equivalent to earthquakes. So this is called the elastic rebound theory because each time the slider moves by a displacement that compensates the stretching of the spring since the previous slip event. Mm. Uh, so this is the model that is mostly used today to address seismic hazard on large faults. And it is a very simplistic mm. model, and we, we would need to understand a little better what's the physics be behind the seismic cycle. In other terms, we need to understand better what is controlling the location, mm. the size, and the, the timing of large earthquakes and big faults. So at the moment, we have this kind of kinematics model, uh, which is doing a good job in terms of explaining, let's say, geodetic data when we measure deformation near fort from GPS, for example. Mm -hmm. We can explain well the observation with, the, with this elastic rebound model, but there is no physics there that we can use to assess better on a given fault anywhere on Earth what should be the size and time of coming large earthquakes. And that's really a challenge in, in our field to bring together some theory of deformation of the Earth at a global scale with what's going on locally mm. along particular plate boundaries. So, in a way, I would say continental drift 
is embedded into plate tectonics. Mm-hmm. And now we need to find out some marginal theory in which plate tectonics would be embedded that would bring into the model the relation between convection in the mantle, deformation at the Earth's surface, and hopefully some physical models to explain the detail of the seismic behavior along plate boundaries. I That's see. really the objective of this new center we are establishing at Caltech. So it sounds like trying to get more of a specific theory of how these physical interactions of these fault zones occur. So we now have a number of techniques that were developed in various fields in earth sciences. Let's say in geodesy, we can use the GPS system, we can use imagery from satellite. We have new techniques also in seismology to get better image of the earth interior. We have techniques in geochronology to date for example, past earthquake, or we can estimate rate of erosion, things like that. A lot of these techniques have brought a great number of observations about the Earth dynamics, and we are probably at a point where we can try to bring together all these pieces and try to, to fit them with, with a, a theory that encompass plate tectonics, but that needs to go beyond plate tectonics because we want to go beyond a purely kinematic description of the Earth. We want to obtain a more physical model, mechanical model of the Earth. I see. Well, we are running a little bit out of time, but maybe it's just as closing, and I'm sure a lot of people would be interested in this. Uh, so what would this mean for predicting how earthquakes occur and when they would occur? Okay, that's, that's <laughs> a difficult question. So, I mean, when we talk about earthquake prediction, there are several things we might mean. One thing that is already useful for the society is to be able to predict the location of future large earthquakes. If you are able to tell in this area the typical size of earthquake is magnitude 7 or magnitude 6 or magnitude 8, I don't know, it's already a very useful information that can be used by the society, for example, in building codes. And that's probably the most important thing. For a practical impact on society, we need actually to address two questions. One is the size of the more probable earthquake in a given area, and also the return period of these large earthquakes. These are the two critical things that we, we must work on establishing better than what we can do today with present tools. Now, the question of predicting the exact timing of a, of a coming earthquake is more or less of a second-order question, and probably the impact for the society would, uh, would not be so great, because let's say that you have a technique to, to predict an earthquake, let's say, a few minutes in advance of the time of occurrence of the earthquake, there's little you can do, Mm -hmm. right? And if it's a year before it occurs, also, you're you're not going to evacuate all the population from a big country because there might be an earthquake occurring one year from now. So, in my view, it seems that it's most important to make the effort on assessing the kind of, of ground motion we would obtain if a given earthquake were to happen on build properly than try to really predict a coming mm-hmm. earthquake. Okay, well, it, it is all very fascinating stuff, but I, I think we are definitely a little out of time here. So, I just want to thank you very much for your time and for telling us a lot about the evolving theories of Earth motion. Okay, thank you very much, Charles. And you were just listening to Professor Jean-Philippe Avoac from Caltech discussing the geological study of the Earth's plates. You're listening to Berkeley Grox only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, coming up next, the Grokatron 5000 and the answer to last week's question of the week. So stay tuned.
Welcome back to Berkeley Grocks, only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Well, we're back from the break, and Professor Jean-Philippe Avoac has graciously decided to stick around and play our game, the Grokatron 5000. The Grokatron 5000 is our computer, formerly known as Deep Blue, and every week chooses a special topic for our guests to answer five questions. And this week, his topic was the Richter scale. So for the following five events, how would these rate if they were an event on the Richter scale? Are you ready to play our game, the Grokatron 5000? Okay. So event number one, Donald Trump firing Omarosa, rating on the Richter scale. I'm not looking at the television. Uh, okay. <laughs> Sorry for that. <laughs> so I, w- I would rank that one uh, maybe uh, <laughs> very low. Let's say okay. two. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Only a two on the Richter scale. Okay. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, okay. So number two then. Okay. On the Richter scale, how would this rank? The Red Sox winning the World Series of baseball. Uh, you know, again, uh, <laughs> it's not something I'm too familiar about. Let's say uh, maybe four. Okay. That <laughs> <laughs> <It> works out. <laughs> it's uh, local culture. Yes, it, I guess it's okay. sort of a local cult. Suppose we should have had something with uh, Shock Chirac on here. But <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, okay, maybe number three then. Number three, uh, the uh, recent uh, announcement of Arafat uh, in a coma. Arafat in the coma. Oh, this is a very big event. This is, well, let's say, seven. So it's going to, to change the, the political situation in the Western Mediterranean, that's for sure. That is isn't certainly indeed sure, so I think we'll have to wait and find out what happens there. Um, number four, I'm, I'm curious if you'll know about this one, but it's Ben Affleck breaking up with Jennifer Lopez. <laughs> Okay, I, I know of Jennifer Lopez. I don't know of this other person, but that's that's probably sad. But <laughs> I, I suspect they will both meet other people. <laughs> okay. And a rating on the Richter scale? Uh, relatively low. Let's yeah. say one. I, I don't think <laughs> it will change the face of the earth, right? Not not much, I don't think. <laughs> Okay, and finally, number five, uh, rating on the Richter scale, George Bush winning the 2004 presidential election. Oh, that's that's a big, big news. I must say, very disappointing for, for me that that's a big, big news. I mean, this it's affecting the whole earth. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people certainly would agree with that. It's uh, certainly a surprising outcome. Well, Professor Avak, I just want to thank you again for uh, playing our game, the uh, Grokatron 5000, and of course, uh, earlier uh, talking about all the very fascinating things with global earth movements. <laughs> Thank you very much, Charles. Thank you very much for your time. All right, and now joining us straight from Japan, it's the Tokyo Kid with the answer to last week's question of the week. Hi, and I am Tokyo Kid with the answer to last week's question of the week. Uh, what is the pancreas? The pancreas creates insulin, which is used to regulate the sugar level in your blood, and that is the purpose of the pancreas. Hey, 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 yo, what's up, brothers? Man, oh, man, I just come back and I've seen these things. You know, there's all kinds of things that are charged in the atmosphere and all kinds of craziness. But the thing that makes me hopped up, plasma, baby, plasma. You know what it is? Well, if you do, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. You're not going to win anything, but ooh, baby, you just might get a charge out of it. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Crocs. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us, you may do so at grocks at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Crocs, I'm Gordon Campbell. And I'm Frank Ling. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grocks.net. And I'm Charles Lee. Stay tuned for more music with your host, Katie.